All right, everybody, good morning. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is a special edition of Kabbalah and Coffee, Kabbalah and Coffee in the Sukkah, or Kabbalah and Coffee in the Sukkah, if, uh, if we wanted to rhyme. Um, I will tell you that there's a very special significance in studying what we're studying in this space. In this space. Why? So I, I need to give you some background. So we were talking about uh, eating in the sukkah, even if it's raining or whatever. There's also, it also says in Jewish law that, you, that one should sleep in the sukkah. You ever heard of this? Sleeping in the sukkah? Okay. Chabad custom is not to sleep in the sukkah. So even though we're hardcore about eating, even when it rains, we don't sleep in the sukkah. Why not? So there's an old Hasidic saying, Vi ken men shlafen in makifen debina. Which means in Yiddish, we got to see. Oh, we got to see right here. No worries. Which means, how can one sleep in the makifim of Bina? So what does that mean? This is Kabbalistic. In the encompassing light of Bina. In other words, in a sukkah, there is a tremendous spiritual energy, which is called in Kabbalah makifim de Bina. There are 50 gates. 50 Sha'arim, 50 gates of Bina, which Bina means understanding. Chachma, Bina, Das, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Bina is understanding, comprehension. There are 50 gates of understanding, of divine understanding, divine, uh, divine Bina. And these 50 uh, dimensions of Bina radiate, are shining, are, are illuminated in the Sukkah. So the, the, the Chabad customs has it that how can you sleep in such a holy presence? How can you sleep? In Makifim of Bina, it's not uh, you, you can't you don't snooze in front of such a such an awesome experience. So that's why we don't sleep in the sukkah. Now, it says in the Talmud, Bina Yisera Nitna Biisha. There's additional Bina, additional measure of Bina of this attribute of Bina that's been granted to the uh, the feminine spirit, the feminine energy. So this is very much aligns with what we're studying. We're studying feminine faith. And we're in this sukkah which has the energy of Bina. So it's very appropriate that we're putting this all together. By the way, does anybody know where Moses is buried? The Torah says, huh? Har Nevo. In English it's Nebo, but in Hebrew it's Nevo. It's spelled Nun, Vet, Vav. Kabbalah says if you break down the word Nevo, the mountain, Har Nevo, Mount Nevo, into two different words, Nun, and Bez and Vav, you get Nun Bo. This really works better on a board. Which means that Moses attained, at that moment of his passing, the 50th level, the Nun. Nun is 50. Nun Bo. In that mountain, there's 50 there, the 50 dimensions, the 50th dimension of Bina. In other words, this idea of, of the, the power of Bina, power of, uh, divine understand, of divine understanding, is a very powerful energy, very powerful spirit. And it's something that we can attain um, on Sukkot, and that we attain in the Sukkah, and again, like I said, it's very appropriate that we're studying feminine faith in this space. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump into it. So, have you ever had an experience where you feel that something is absolutely true? Like an epiphany, some sort of experience where you know that there's something, whatever it is, that is absolutely true. Right? That there's no question in your mind. Even though in the past maybe it's been something that you've questioned, yes, no, 
you know, whatever, the back and forth. But now, there's an absolute clarity. Ever, ever have that experience? Yeah. So I'll ask you a very simple question. How long did it last? <laughs> Sometimes, look, it could be something that lasts forever. However, oftentimes, what can happen is, we have these moments of clarity, moments of truth, but they don't last forever. It's like, I don't know, what's a good example? Does anybody want to share an example of something that was absolutely true to them? Well, the moment of, of giving birth. Oh, that's the example that I was thinking. Oh, good. So, I don't have the experience of actually giving birth, but the experience of holding a child for the first time, like, soon after, and just looking into their eyes, and, and just, you know, having that sense of purity and truth, and, you know, there's nothing that I wouldn't do in the world for this child. And then the question is, does that really last forever? You know, does, is there ever a time in our lives subsequently where we say, you know what, uh, i got to work late, and i got to do this, and i got to do that, and so you make another plan with the, with the kids. So, you know, the question is, do we always, like I always tell, the, speak about the idea of Pidyan Haben, the redemption of the firstborn. At 30 days old, the custom is that a firstborn son is redeemed, because otherwise uh, there, there's a likelihood that he firstborn son would be dedicated to the coin, so you approach a coin, and you say, uh, you basically exchange the child for five coins. So the way the, the back and forth works is, you don't exchange a child for five coins, but basically you say, you give the Kohen five silver coins and say, in exchange of these five silver coins, I'm going to keep my child. But the Kohen actually asks the question. The Kohen asks, which would you rather, the coins or the kid? And you answer, the kid, take the coins, and we're done. But the, and so it sounds ludicrous, but as I said before in this class and previous previous editions, previous series, it's not such a far-fetched thing. I mean, how often do we sell out those things of value for the five coins? You can make a few extra coins, coins, done. I'm selling out, whether it's the kids or other values or you know, whatever, God, you know, prayer, whatever it is, mitzvah. We do sell out, unfortunately. We sell out the things that we know to be true and dear and, 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 and absolute for, uh, for the temporal, for the temporary. So, it becomes a challenge. Look, it's not, it's, this is not a, 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 the point is not to condemn, the point is not to, it's not, the point is to realize that even when things can be absolutely true to us, and this is true for all of us, even when things can be absolutely true, a moment later, they can cease being so true. Or maybe not that they cease to be to being so true, but other things jump in the way. Other things, you know, say, hey, don't forget about me. And we forget. So as human beings, we have this condition called amnesia. We all have it. It's not the lore of like 80s books and films. Was that 80s? I mean, that's when I grew up and I first heard about it. Anyway, it's not, the, it's not only like the, uh, you know, we all have this amnesia. We have moments in our, in our lives when everything feels true. Well, not everything. When certain values seem absolutely true and inviolable. I will never violate it. And then the inspiration goes away. The reason why I'm talking about this is because today we're going to get into the sin of the golden calf. And the sin of the golden calf, everyone has the same question. Everyone has the same question. When you read the story. Here the Jews were slaves for 210 years in Egypt. And they were beaten and broken and, and just their spirit was, was absolutely devastated. And then Moses 
God sends Moses to speak to the people and revive their spirit. And Moses comes along and says, you're going to be redeemed. The Torah says, they didn't listen they didn't listen to Moshe, Moses because of the because of shortness of breath, shortness of spirit, and from the harsh labor. They didn't listen, they didn't believe. But then one plague after another, one, two, three, ten plagues, we all know the story, also the film, ten plagues happen, and not only does Pharaoh believe in God, but, but the Jewish people believe in God, and now it's real. And then they leave Egypt, and then the Egyptians are approaching. They chase after them, right? Pharaoh changes his mind a few days later, he says, well, what did I do? Is one day he looks out. Why, are, why is all the construction down? Remember in Atlanta when we first moved here five years ago? When Leah and I first moved here? You couldn't look out in Atlanta without seeing a crane. It was, um, I, we, I actually remarked, Atlanta, what is with the city? It's like the whole skyline is filled with cranes everywhere. And now, I mean, there's hardly a crane left. Anyway, so Pharaoh says, what happened to all the cranes? Where are all the people? What, what, happened, to all the, what, what happened to the construction? He had amnesia, right? And it, we let the Jews go. What? Are you kidding me? What, who let me sign off on that idea? Huh? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? So again, when you get hit with the plague, suddenly it's all true. Of course I have to let them go. And you're not hit with the plague anymore. Right? Here we have another example of the amnesia. It's like, when everything, I always say about fast days. Maybe I've said this last week. When you're fasting, it's like you've never eaten before. And when you eat, after the fast, it's like you never fasted. Unless you have a headache. That's another story. Anyway, so it's like we were so like either or. Anyway, so Pharaoh says, let's chase the Jewish people. So he chases the, the Jewish people, pins them against the sea. And now there's, uh, there's different groups. Some say, just commit suicide in the sea. We can't go back. Some say, let's go back. Some say, let's fight. Some say, let's pray. God says to Moses, tell the people, Vaiso, keep on moving forward. Don't give up. Keep on moving forward. You have a mission to go to Sinai. Keep on moving. And they move. Nachshon is the leader, Nachshon ben Aminadav, he starts going through, the sea splits, and everyone's saved. The sea collapses back in the Egyptians, and they're wiped out. Okay. Then, 49 days later, 50 days later, after the Exodus on the 50th day, they receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. They hear the Ten Commandments spoken by God, at least the first two. It's such a powerful moment that the Talmud says, after every single Debra, after every single uh, commandment, their actual souls flew out of their bodies. It was such an awe-inspiring and awesome experience that they couldn't contain it. And their souls left their bodies and then they had to be revived again. It was a miracle that they were revived. Okay, so they had that experience. Forty days later, they're building, a, they're creating a golden calf. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. How do you go from a place of seeing God's hand in plague after plague after plague, in splitting of the sea, at, the, uh, at, at Sinai, the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And then you go, you segue smoothly into Golden Calf. How does it line up? It doesn't make sense. Every stu student of the Bible, every Torah student, every Torah scholar, every biblical commentary, everyone asks the same question. How is it possible that the Jewish people could have fallen into the sin of the Golden Calf? It doesn't line up. It does, something's missing here. So, as I said before, a simple explanation, very simple explanation is this idea of spiritual amnesia, or amnesia in general, that as human beings we forget. And even when something is absolutely true, and you know it beyond the shadow of a doubt, and there's no question, and at that moment that you knew it, you know it, you knew it, and you'll always know it. 
It's like eternal. It's like this eternal, you know, searing branding in your soul and spirit and your heart. And yet, 40 days later, you forget. It's possible. All we need to do is look at our own lives, right? All we need to do is look at our own lives. Things are true, right? We're inspired. Let's say on a holiday in Yom Kippur, we're inspired. The next morning, not so inspired. Right? We decide we're changing this, we're changing that, or we're committing more to family, committing more to community, committing more to charitable causes. And then it's like, yeah, but it's a little bit tight now. Or like, yeah, but... And we're able to, and we're able to rationalize it. And we're able to work around it. We're able to figure out how it doesn't mean I'm selling out. It means that for the moment I'm you know, temporarily you know, putting this on hold until I'm in a better... Whatever it is. We're able to do this. We're crafty. We're very crafty. Um, so I remember uh, Leah told me that she had a teacher who used to tell her class, there were very smart kids in her class, the teacher used to tell her class in South Africa, Johannesburg, that if they only put as much effort into actually studying as they did in getting out of studying, <laughs> right, and giving all the excuses why not to study, or this because of this, because of that, all of the brain work in getting out of it, they would have just invested in studying. I mean, they would have been... Not lay, of course. The class. The other, the other girls. Anyway, let's take some questions. Yeah. Isn't it also like human nature that once you have it, you start taking it for granted? There's, that's also true. You know, you have it, and it's, you know, we've achieved it. We have it, and uh, you know, it's maybe not as valuable anymore as as when you first achieved it. Or then you don't think that it comes from God. You just think. It's just going to be there no matter what. Right. Yeah, but I still like golden calf. Still. Was it literally 40 days? 40 days. Is that a phrase that just means a period of time? 40 days. Literally 40 days. We're actually going to see very soon, based on the commentaries, the Torah commentaries, how this whole 40 days plays out and why they made the mistake. But we'll see that very soon. But we'll see that it is 40 days. I would think that when you're talking about an experience that's true, it's sort of, it's, it's appealing to your essence, it's the core that you know it's true. And when you start doubting or revising or justifying, that to me has a lot to do with fear, and it comes from a completely other place. Oh, very good. In other words, you could be moved in your essence, but what has my essence done for me lately? We don't live in that space always. Right. In other words, right. It says this in, in Chassidus and Kabbalah all the time. It says that you know you can have something that moves you on the deepest of places and our soul is always in the right place. Right. The question is, does that filter translate into a practical application? Does that move us on the day-to-day? Or do we live on a more external level, reacting to things? You talked about fear. I would say we're very reactionary in our lives. We know we need money. We know we need stuff, so we're reacting. We're reacting, we're moving in the world in a reactionary way to satisfy what we have most immediate. We don't think about articulating our deeper, uh, our deeper needs, our deeper truths. That's, and that's a problem. You know? I think there's a, a little biology at work, too, because every woman who's ever had a child is literally amnesia. Right. Well, that's what they say, that if you would remember, yeah. da, 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 right? Oh, yeah. You wouldn't have another one. And I think that that, you know, is part of uh, that essential thing that keeps us moving forward and keeps us grounded in the practical, because otherwise we wouldn't do it again. I think that's an amazing point. And you just shot something else. It says with regard, I know this is the, the opposite end of the spectrum of the life cycle, it says that by morning, uh, by morning loss, it says that there's a blessing that God gives us, which is that 
eventually the pain, the starkness of the pain and loss diminishes with time. Slow, at least to a certain extent. It's not as powerful as it was at the, at the very beginning. Otherwise, we couldn't move on. Notice there's a certain amnesia, not amnesia, I have to be careful with this, not amnesia forgetting the person, forget, but the idea of, of that starkness, of the pain and loss, you know, easing a little bit. What it says about, about uh, Jacob and Joseph, that because Yosef, Joseph, was really alive, you know, the brothers sold him, and they framed his death, they, they pretended, or they... they took his coat and they dipped it in blood and they said that he was ripped up by or they, they, they showed it to their father Jacob, Yaakov and Yaakov said oh he was ripped up by, uh, by a wild animal but since he wasn't actually not alive anymore since he was actually still living so the, the in a sense the blessing of the amnesia of loss wasn't granted to, to Jacob and so he felt the starkness, the pain of the loss of Yosef. For those 22 years that he was separated, every single day, he felt the intensity of the pain as the first day. Because he wasn't granted, there's a blessing. That, and again, it's a blessing. I have to be careful when we say these words. And it doesn't come off callous. So, I mean, I'm just trying to articulate it in the most uh, precise way. But there's a, there's, a, there's a certain blessing to the fact that the pain does ease over time. And that happens through the starkness of the loss... In, in a certain way, easy, easing up, and that, uh, but that's only given in the case where there's loss, and not in the case where there's uh, where his child was actually missing but still alive. Um, who, who? Oh, yeah, Mary. I was just thinking about the um, the golden calf, and I don't know if we're going to read anything about this, but um, human nature seems to be more of we like to control things, and I don't know if maybe this was something that they could be in charge of instead of waiting and trusting like we talked about last week if it's something that they could control so they felt maybe compelled to so we spoke about trust last week and how women have this uh, this innate uh, sense of trust as opposed to faith faith is I believe trust is I know I know it's going to happen and I think that there's a lot of truth in that in trying to be the master of your own of your space of your destiny and it's, you know, and it's just, we are going to get into that. You know, when they, when they see that Moses is not returning, they panic. And they want to take control of the situation. We'll see there's a lot of truth in that, but we'll, we'll work it in. Yeah. Um, I know, uh, I feel more connected to God when I'm in times of pain or difficulty. I, I, it's easier for me to be aware that it's all really in God's hands. And then when God gets me out of the situation or shows me what to do to take the next right steps, I don't know when it happens, but suddenly my ego kicks in and takes over, and I forget that God had anything to do with it. And it's suddenly, I did it. Yeah. That's all me. Yay me. This is one of the biggest challenges. And by the way, this is one of the reasons, according to Jewish mysticism, why we celebrate Sukkot this time of year. Uh, let me pose it as a question. Why do we celebrate Sukkot this time of year? Think about it. Why, 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 are, why do we build a sukkah? What does it remind us of? Being in the desert. Being in the desert, in the clouds of glory. Well, when did they start traveling the desert? Think about it. After, After Passover. Right? They, started, they were already in the desert. Passover, Shavuot, they received the Torah. Okay, there was a golden calf issue, but whatever. But they were traveling in the <laughs> desert from after Passover. 
So why do we wait literally exactly six months later? 15th of Nisan is Passover, the 15th of Tishrei is Sukkot. Six, half a year later, suddenly it's like, oh yeah, the clouds of glory, thank you. What's, what's up with that? There's a simple reason, basic reason, is that we don't want to go outside in the sukkah in the spring and summer because then people would say the only reason why you're doing it is not for the mitzvah, but it's because it's so nice, such nice weather. So we do it instead in the fall, which in Georgia is actually beautiful. Anyway, so it kind of circumvents that, that idea. But anyway, that's one reason it's good, but I'll tell you a deeper reason. What does the Torah call Sukkot? From an agricultural place. What does it call Sukkot? Chag? Not har- well, it's connected to the harvest. What is it? Chag Ha-Asif. Chag Ha-Asif. What does Chag Ha-Asif mean? The gathering. The gathering of the harvest. Shavuot is the harvest. Shavuot is when they cut down the food. They left it in, back in Israel. When they were, so they left, and they, they left the grains and the wheat. They let it dry out in the heat in the sun throughout the winter. Right? Throughout the summer, sorry. And then before the rainy season... They collected, they brought it into the storage, to the store, the, the silos, whatever, the storage places of the grain. So they brought this time of year, before the rainy season, so on Sukkot, they brought in those Chagahos, the, the festival of, of the gathering of the harvest. Good. So here's the message. You're gathering your harvest, and what happens? You feel rich. Look at me. Look at this. I got a lot of stuff. We're going to eat well this year. It's been a tremendous... Look at the harvest, right? Until you gather it in, it's theoretical. You gather it in, you're counting your cash. It's amazing. It's a great year. I got a year, end of year bonus even. Right? You're gathering and everything. It's tremendous. You're riding high. At that moment, what are you susceptible to do? You're susceptible to forgetting about Hashem. Forget where the blessing comes from. So you say, you know what? Out into the sukkah you go. Make yourself a little vulnerable. Put yourself out there in the elements. And remember where your protection comes from. It comes from the clouds of glory that protected us in the desert of old are still protecting us today. Even though we feel secure in our houses of, of brick and mortar, the truth is we're as vulnerable as we were in the desert to life, as we know, whether it's uh, natural uh, nature or whether it's economy or whether it's politics, it doesn't make a difference what it, health, it doesn't make a difference what it is. We all know the vulnerability of life. We all know that to be true. And we're still, and our survival and our protection is only from Hashem. When do we need the reminder specifically? We need the reminder when things are going well, when we're bringing in the harvest, when we're counting the cash. Then we need to, a little rem- reminder, don't forget, don't forget who's got your back. It also, could also be that it's just exactly six months would be when you've just about forgotten the last Passover and that could, not quite anticipating the next one. Right, yeah, we need like a half year reminder. That's yeah, along the same lines. Yeah. Alright, so with all of these uh, words of preface, now we're ready to jump into the, uh, the next section on page 24, which is, head, the header says, incomprehensibility of the sin of the golden calf. And again, what we're going to be doing is looking at the sin of the golden calf, just to remind everybody why we're looking at the golden calf. We're looking at the sin of the golden calf in order to draw a sharp distinction between the response of, oh, there might be an extra copy um, right over there, there you go, between, yeah, between, uh, to draw a sharp distinction between the reaction of the men and the reaction of the women. 
Um, oh, oh, oh. Um, I only have copies of... We have it? All right, here we go. Back to... All right, so we're drawing a, a sharp distinction between the reaction of the, the Jewish men of old and the women of old. How they reacted in that moment of crisis when what they believed in did not seem to pan out. And again, herein we'll see how herein lies a subtle distinction between faith and trust. How deeply do you know that it's going to work out? How deeply do you know that what you believe in is actually going to pan out versus how much is it, well, I have faith, but like I said last week, just keep this in mind. When everyone gathers to pray for rain in the synagogue 200 years ago in the shtetl, right? Called the day of prayer. And the rabbi says, you're here for a prayer? Yeah. You think prayer is going to help? Yeah. Where's your umbrellas? Right? That's the question, right? Did you bring your umbrella to the day of prayer for rain? Did you really trust that your prayer... Not only believe, I have faith. It's easy to believe. You know, it says, That's a little Aramaic. It says, A ganif, a thief, as is about to dig under the home and about to break through. Right? About, again, you're a thief, right? Old school. Old school. This is like the burrowing type of thief. You burrow under a house, right? And you're about to pop up into somebody else's living room. And now you're faced with the prospect of folks standing there with shotguns or no one's home. I mean, you have no idea because you're in a tunnel somewhere that you've dug. So what happens? You start praying to God. Says the Talmud. It's possible. A person about... To... So imagine this paradox. You have faith in a sense that you're praying to God because you believe that God hears prayers and God will deliver your prayer, right? Because you're praying, please God help me with this nefarious act. At the same time, you're doing something that God says don't do. So how... So what happened to your belief? So what happens here is that there's a little bit of a disconnect between my faith and my actions. This is the same thing we're talking about here. You know, I believe, right? I believe that prayer is going to bring rain. But where's my rain? But where's my, uh, where's my umbrella? Do I really trust that it's going to happen? And again, here we're going to see this sharp distinction between how the men reacted in the crisis of the sin- uh, surrounding the moments before the sin of the golden calf and how the women reacted. And this will... Uh, this will as I said last week, help shape the, uh, the Kabbalistic discussion of the distinction between masculine energy and feminine energy, according to Kabbalah. Yeah? I was just going to say in your, in your analogy there, don't people bargain at that point? If you'll help me now, I promise I'll never steal again, but just this once. Could be. Could be. Yeah, there's a lot of negotiating. We all we all do negotiating. It's all it's always like, okay, I'll hook you up with this, but you hook, hook me up with that. Whether it's, you know, legal or, or not so, you know, on the up and up. We all do that. There's a lot of that to it. But I think the idea is that if you really believed or trusted or whatever, then, then you would... It's a good point. But if you really trusted in God, you'd say, God could hook me up without me having to do, you know, what I'm doing. But sometimes, you, you, you know, the actions are really the important thing as well. Even if you don't believe and even if you don't trust, sometimes you still bring the umbrella. Right. Right. Huh? You act as if. That's it. That's a powerful point. A hundred percent. I mean, look, we, we all know this to be true, that action many times spurs the emotion, spurs the feeling. And if you don't feel it, 
exactly like you feel it. You know, with happiness. If you don't feel happy, you know, Sukkos. It's Zman Simcha Seinu. It's the only holiday in which the Torah calls the season, the festival of rejoicing. Every holiday is a, is a time of joy, but specifically Sukkot and upcoming Simcha Torah, specifically moments of celebration and, and joy. And so what if I don't feel happy? Dance anyway, and you'll get happy. It's infectious, it's contagious, in a good way. Put on a happy face. It'll, it'll work. It'll work. All right. Let's uh, let's let's get into let's bite into the text here. Twenty four. We got a lot of a uh, lot of deep stuff to cover. All right, uh, Doris, please take it away. Incomprehensibility of the sin of the golden calf. We will presently be able to understand all of this by first explaining the underlying idea behind the episode of the golden calf. Now, first of all, okay, so we have to stop again. <laughs> what, what are we trying to? We said we will presently be able to understand all of this. So, what are we trying to understand? Let's, 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 let's recall what we're trying to understand. We're trying to understand a few things. Number one, what is Rosh Chodesh? Right? Why? Huh? Number one, what's Rosh Chodesh? Why is Rosh Chodesh such a special day? Why is it? In other words, we said that Rosh Chodesh is the head of the month, that it contains the energy of the other 30 days. So we said, we need to understand that better. That's number one. Second question, or second idea to understand is, why Rosh Chodesh is given specifically to women? to observe more than men. And even though we know that it was given to the women more than the men because of their non-participants, participation. participation, in the sin of the golden calf, but that itself needs to be understood. Why didn't they participate in the sin of the golden calf, which is about what, which is what we're about to get into. And then we said also, it seems to be a time-based mitzvah, positive mitzvah, and if anything, women should be less, not that they shouldn't have to, but they should be less uh, obligated. Why more obligated than men? So again, all of this we need to understand, and he says in order to better understand this, uh, Yuvan, again, which is Bina, the idea of understanding, to understand this, we got to look at the episode of the golden calf and understand it on a very deep level. Continue, please. Upon seeing that Moses delayed in descending from the mountaintop and that the sixth hour had arrived and Moses had not returned, the mixed multitude convinced the Jews to make the calf. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Moses went up to the mountain. The Torah was given... The revelation at Sinai happened on the sixth day of Sivan in the year 2448 from creation. Sixth day of Sivan. The next day, the next morning, Moses ascends the mountain. God says, this, the Torah says that God told Moses after the revelation at Sinai, come up the mountain and up for 40 days and I will teach you the entire Torah, and then you'll go back down and deliver the rest, because all they had were the Ten Commandments at that point. Sinai, Revelation at Sinai, was only the Ten Commandments. God says, come up the mountain, I'll tell you the rest, and then you'll transmit it back to the Jewish people. Good. Moses transmits this back to the Jewish people, and he says, I'll be back in 40 days. Seems like, seems cool, right? So far, so good. Here's the problem. Moses... The Torah says, and I actually had this in last week's handout, which we read a few times, the first two weeks. Moses was delayed, it says, Ki voshesh Moshe loredes You can see it in the Hebrew on 25 at the bottom, that's why it's in italics, because it's actually a quote from the Torah. Moses was delayed in descending from the mountaintop. What does it mean he was delayed? There are two opinions. Some say he was delayed by a few hours. Some say he was delayed by a full day. Moses said, specifically, I will return 
in 40 days at the 6th hour. When's the 6th hour? Huh? Noon. 6th hour is noon. Right? Because in an average day, if, if, if dawn is 6 a.m. and dusk is 6 p.m., right? So your 6 hours... Your midday, six hours midday is 12 noon. Moses says, at high noon, in 40 days, I'll be back. Right? The Moses nader. I'll be back with the Torah, with the rest of it. Good. They count 40 days. Sixth hour comes and goes. No Moses. Moses does not show up. It says that what happened was the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude begins convincing the rest of the people to make the calf. Who were the mixed multitude? So you have there in the footnote 15, they were various individuals from Egypt and from other countries that joined the Jewish people upon the Exodus. So it says in the commentaries that the mixed multitude was actually the ones driving the eagle, driving the golden calf, but then others got, uh, the, the, others got involved as well. So they got involved in making the golden calf. Okay? Why? Because again, Moses is delayed in coming down. Boshesh, the word in, he, the, word in the Torah used for delay, ki voshesh Moshe, he translates, the Talmud translates, and he translates here, boshesh. Boshesh, the word, or voshesh, the Hebrew word, vez, vet, shin, shin. Voshesh means delayed. If you split it up again into a vet and the sheish, and you get a little creative, it's vashesh. The sixth came. Sixth hour came. Ba means come. Sheish, six. The sixth hour came, and Moses was delayed. Moses was delayed because the sixth hour came and he wasn't there. Either he came later that day after the sixth hour, or he came the next day, which is the accepted opinion. But the point is that he was delayed. And because he was delayed, they built, they created a golden calf. Yeah. Could you give some background? It shows my ignorance of history and the Old Testament. But I can think of a lot of things people might have done when Moses was late. This is what we're going to... This is exa- good. Good. You're asking the right question. This is exactly what we're going to get into. The incomprehensibility of what they did. He's late. What do you do if somebody's late? You wait. Right? Yeah, let's go build the golden calf. Form a search party and go look... Form a search party. Start heading up the mountain. Moses! 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 Right? Make a plan. Right? Search and rescue. Pray. Do something. No, let's, let's create a golden calf. Where does this come from? We're going to get into this. It's exactly spot on the question we're going to address. But I just want to explain what happened. What the problem was, again, according to most commentaries, the 90% of the commentaries, the problem was they were off by a full day. Because they started counting the 40 days from the day that Moses went up the mountain. Again, Moses went up in the morning after the, giving of the, after the Ten Commandments, the revelation at Sinai. So Moses, again, Moses went up the seventh day of Sivan. They counted 40 days, including that day. But we know that in Judaism, the Jewish day starts at night. So, um, right? It starts the night, at night the, day, the night before. So when Moses goes up the mountain, the morning of the 7th, that can't be counted as a full day of the 40. Because he hadn't gone up the night of the 40th. He only went up the day of the 40th. So if you want to count 40 full days, you've got to start... From that night, the night of the seventh, going into the eighth, as day one, or the next day would be day one. And then you count your 40 days, and that's when Moses returned. 
What happened was, there was a very complicated plot. Very complicated thing here. The Talmud says that Satan, the Satan, Satan, the Satan, brought darkness into the world and showed an image of Moses' casket in the heavens. As if Moses had died. And that also added to this, uh, to this panic. If you're wondering, does Judaism believe in Satan? So you have to come to our new course that's, a pro- that's uh, coming up <laughs> called, uh, <laughs> called uh, Fascinating Facts, which will deal with this very question. But the Talmud speaks extensively about the Satan. But it's not, uh, it's not exactly what you, what you think or what other, other faiths have it as. Anyway, but but the, the Talmud does say this at the and you know it's in the next uh, it's in the next sentence over here. But, yeah. but one thing that also comes to mind is it's probably not the first time that a Jew was late doing something, right? As I said, as I said last week, from this point on, we have Jewish time now, and everyone expects you to be late because otherwise we're building golden calves, right? Imagine like spouses, right? It's like you said you'd be home at. Um, uh, honey, who's that guy in the kitchen? Well, you said you'd be home by 12. I, I, I right. decided to... Uh, so, so the, so the point. <laughs> right? I'm sorry, I couldn't wait around. Right? I mean, so, this, so this the, is what they did. Like, was the most golden calf. you jumping. The point um, that I was trying to make is it seems like their faith was so... Their faith or their trust was so fragile at this point that to have that kind of reaction... So it's sort of like this whole concept of... Um, Trust. Maybe it has to do with the fact that we were slaves for 200 years. Ah, uh, we were and too broken to. Okay, good. Does that look? The men's faith was fragile. Uh, the point is that the women's. Wasn't they they the didn't. So the question is going to be right. That's what we're trying to get to. The, the question is why is it that the women said, "Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you really? You're, really? <laughs> we're making a gold. This is what you wanted. This is the big idea. This is like the guys. Guys got together, made a conference, got together a committee, and said, "I think." We think, unanimous decision, golden calf. Really? Sports car. Right, sport, like what? A little bit of an overreaction. What? What are you, what are you thinking? Right? Midlife crisis already? We just, we're just a nation. So, <laughs> no, right? So, so this, this is, huh? Maserati. Here we go. Right, like, no, so this, this is, this is going to be what we're addressing. How is it that they were so fragile? And as we'll see, it's not so simple. As just they didn't have faith. There's something. There's something much deeper behind it, that that pushed them to that direction, pushed the women in the direction of not buying into this and 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 seeing right through this as as being completely ridiculous, right? There's something underlying to the feminine and masculine spirits and energies that actually drives these two approaches and how we have to be, and knowing this is going to empower us in such a deep way in our lives, in general. In our relationships, in our lives, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, this is going to be profoundly impactful to, to really get to the heart of the issue. What is it? Because here we see a clear distinction. Men on this side, whatever, whatever side you want. Men one direction, women the other direction. What is, what is driving them in different directions? Men to this incomprehensible sin. And the women to, to sticking... But they still were out. The women were still outvoted, obviously. They weren't. Well, didn't they make the golden calf? The men made the golden Well, I mean, it was made. The women are like, ugh, these men making the golden calves again. <laughs> no, I don't know. If, I, what, what, are they going to stop it? There was a mob. They worked, They killed Hur, I said last week, I think. Hur, the son of Miriam, right? Moses' nephew, Aaron's nephew. He tried to stop them. They killed him. 
So I, no, they didn't. They didn't get involved. No, they didn't. Get, anyway, okay. So let's. Um, oh, so okay. Continue. Second line, uh, twenty-six. The Satan's wily plan succeeded, and they proclaimed, "Here is your God, O Israel, who took you out of Egypt." So look what happened. They proclaimed. Literally, look, look, look at the words that they said. This, the Torah says this. This is a quote. The italics over here are, are quotes. This is the style of the character series. So not put quotations, but italics. Here is your God, O Israel, who took it. They created a golden calf, and they said, This is your God that took you out of Egypt. This golden calf that we just made. Huh? What? That's what they said. You've got to continue reading, because this is, this is absolutely perplexing. This is most astounding, especially considering that this was a generation of knowledge. Which I'm going to explain soon, but I want you to continue the question. How could they think that a golden calf made of inert matter was a god and the one who had taken them out of Egypt? Okay, so there's two questions. There's really two questions here. You see the two questions? Number one, how could they think... Again, the underlying question is, why did they make the golden calf in the first place? That's number one. Okay, so they got confused with the day, but why did they run into a golden calf? Number two is, how could they think that a golden calf that they just created is a god? That's number two, whatever. This, and the, the second part of the question in this paragraph is, how could they think that this is what, who took them out of Egypt? Why? Because it wasn't around until just now. It wasn't around. This is not only a god, but this is the god that took you out of Egypt. Oh, really? We just made it. We left Egypt 90 days ago. Right? Hello. How does this work? Again, let's break it down timeline. They left Egypt. 50 days later, they received the Torah. 40 days after that, sin of the golden calf. This is 90 days. This is three months. So, three months after the Exodus, suddenly, they throw gold into a fire... With, there's a whole other story. How to turn into a calf because they had Aleshur. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story in a second. But I just want to gloss over it quickly and then I'll get back to it. So they throw the gold into a fire. It turns into a golden calf. And I'll explain this in a second. How, why, how it turned into a calf. But anyway, it turns into a calf. And they say, not only is it a god. It's the god that took us out of, the, out of, out of Egypt three months ago. We just made this. How does that work? Maybe because it became a calf, it was like, <laughs> yeah, but it was all right. So it's like it's like it's it's cool. Yeah, it's a party trick. But like, how is this a god? And how is this the god that took you out of Egypt? We we left Egypt without this calf, right? Did you see this calf? Was it with Moses? Was Moses riding on the golden calf out of Egypt? I mean, was this around? No, we just made it. How can you think? How can you be so distorted to think that something you just made? Now, okay. So now we're. We're going to get there in a second. It's going, to, it's going to touch on astrology. Kabbalah, astrology. Look, I will say that even as I say it, you know, look, as I said before, we have this in our own experience. We create things now and we say, this is the key. This, is, this has always been the key, even though it hasn't existed before. Whatever it is, things that are unhealthy, you say, this is my, uh, this is my God and this is, uh, this is my Savior and has always been my Savior. Anyway, we're susceptible to this, but we're asking the question and we're going to give a different answer than that. Uh, look, it's easy to chalk up to human behavior and to amnesia, as I said before, but we're going, we're going, I don't know if it's deeper, we're going in a different direction. But anyway, this is the question. So let me just address the, the two things. Number one, what does it mean that they were a generation of knowledge? He says, it's most astounding, especially considering that they were a dardea, a generation of das, of knowledge, of, 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 uh, of, of, da, yeah, of dat, of dea. What does that mean? 
So it says like this. It says that the generation that left Egypt, the generation that received the Torah, they're called uh, the generation, they're called Dardea, generation of knowledge, which means that they had a very strong connection with... It's kind of weird to say this because with the golden calf and everything, but they had a strong connection with with knowledge of Hashem. Now we know that in Kabbalah there are three intellectual faculties. There's Chachma, there's Bina, and there's Das. Chachma is intellectual conception, coming up with that creativity, coming up with an idea. Bina is understanding the idea well, breaking it down into all of its particulars, finding parallel ideas, the idea of really understanding something well, which is where most of intellect, I think, most of the experience happens. There are not that many creative minds. Um, it's a certain power, but many people understand things well, I think. And then there's Das. Das is connection, intellectual connection, where a person connects with an idea very well. So the generation that left Egypt is called Dardea. They were a generation that really connected with God, really connected with the knowledge of God, connected with, with Torah, etc. That's what it says in, in, in various sources. There's a footnote here, 17... Priyaschaim Zohar. Okay, it comes from, uh, it's, it's a Kabbalistic term. Just, for, just to be clear, yeah. before they got the, all of Torah, right, this is just, at this point, when they're doing the calf, all they've gotten is the Ten Commandments. That's right, that's right. But still, that generation collectively is called the generation of knowledge. So he asked the question, if they're the generation of knowledge, that's what Kabbalah calls them, how could they fall to such a place where they're making a golden calf out of metal, calling it a god and saying, yeah, this is what took us out three months ago, even though it, just, it was just born, it was just created, we just made it. Yeah, this, is the, this was our Savior three months ago. How, how, how is that possible? All right, continue, please. Um, their own experience? Yeah. Their own experience should have refuted such a notion. They all saw that no calf existed at the time of the exodus from Egypt, and indeed, were Moses to have come on time, the mixed multitude would never have been able to entice them into making the calf in the first place. So his, his argument, it's a logical argument here. He says, first of all, he's, again, th- these are two things. Really, it probably should be split into two sentences. Number one, their own experience, as I, I, I foreshadowed this before. Anyway, he says, their own experience should have told them that this is impossible. That this is the, because they didn't, there was no such calf at the time of the Exodus, number one. Number two, he says, this is the logical argument, he says, had Moses come on time, no one would have ever made a golden calf. No one would have ever said, oh, let's make a golden calf. Oh, and this was the God that took us out of Egypt. In other words, it was obviously ridiculous, so much so that it would have never even had a potential, Right? Of, of getting... There was no one would have ever bought into this idea had there not been room because of Moses' delay. In other words... Let me... It's not like the idea is logical. That's his point. The idea only becomes... It's like a conspiracy theory. It's not like it makes sense. The only reason why there's room for it is because there's some sort of inconsistency or something. There's some gap in time. There's something. Like uncertainty. There's some uncertainty in, in, in a different area. So then there's this. I'm not, and I'm not blasting on what I'm not getting into conspiracy theories. But my point is that suddenly, because of this 
this gap in time. Moses says 40 days, 6th hour, and it's now past that, whatever. So now it's like, boom, we're going to go with this completely ridiculous idea. It doesn't make sense. In other words, his point is, the only way that this started was because of a, of a lapse in time. But not that this has log- not that this makes logical sense. It's not like had he been on time, there would have been those who said, you know what, the golden calf is still, we should still make a golden calf, because it still makes sense to make a golden calf. In other words, there was nothing, logically, Golden calf doesn't make any sense. It's only because there's now there's now a, a, an inconsistency in time or a delay. So now there's a so now it's introduced, but that doesn't make it logical. That doesn't make it any more understandable how this could have happened. Okay, continue, please. It was only due to their error and the fact that it was a cloudy day which led them into making into making. That he was late? Uh, yeah, that should be wrong. Yeah, I mean, that, that should be wrong. I'm, I'm also wrong. Which led them into thinking. thinking. One second, I should be dietum. Yeah, dietum. Ta'usum, lufi dietum. It should be thinking, yeah. Thinking or believing. Thinking that he was late, that the mixed multitude even had the opportunity to entice the Jews. It was only because it was a cloudy day. That's according to the opinion that, that he was delayed from the sixth hour, so they weren't sure when noon was. They didn't have clocks. I guess it was sundials, and it was cloudy, and whatever. The six. They thought it was the sixth hour. It wasn't the sixth hour, whatever. So they thought he was late. So they had an opportunity to entice the Jews, but it still doesn't make sense. Continue. Nor would the Satan's wily plan to have them form the calf have succeeded without that opportunity. The entire notion, as well as what this had to do with the fact that they thought that Moses was late remains totally incomprehensible. In other words, and again here, there's two things. The entire notion, or the concept of the golden calf, in general, makes no sense. And also, why are you blaming it on Moses being late? What does one have to do with the other? He's late on the golden calf. Number one, what's the golden calf? Number two, what's the connection between uh, golden calf and Moses being late? Good, these are the questions. I, I just want to just, Laman Shlema Sadaver, just to complete the, the discussion. It says in either the Talmud or the Medrash, it's not, this is not Kabbalistic, this is uh, from other sources. It says that the calf, the golden calf, rose or emerged when they threw into the fire that they had put, thrown the gold into. They threw into the fire a piece of uh, an inscription that had the words Ale Shor, which means rise ox. What's the connection? Where, where, where did they get this from? What, what does it mean? It says like this Joseph, Yosef, when he passed away, he told his family to bury him in Egypt. Right? Jacob, when he passed away, said, promise, he told Joseph, promise that you'll take my remains and back to Israel. When Joseph passes away, and this is the final, one of the final verses in the book of Genesis, Joseph passes away, and Joseph says, Joseph says, bury me here, but when you leave Egypt, promise that you'll take my bones, my remains, with you when you leave. He was already foreshadowing the experience of exile, of the slavery, and the ultimate redemption the ultimate uh, exodus, and he says, "When you leave Egypt, take my remains uh, back to the holy, back to the promised land." So it's the night of the tenth plague, and Pharaoh, uh, the Makas Bacharos, the uh, the plague of the firstborn, and Pharaoh is running around saying, "Go, get out of here, take your." 
Moses says, we're going to go the next morning. We're not going to run in the middle of the night. We're going to, not going to steal like steal away in the middle of the night like we're, we're trying to hide something. We're going to go in the day when it's uh, high noon. We're going to go in the middle of the day. In the midst of the day. Good. Problem is, Moses has this tradition. He has this uh, pledge passed down to him as the leader to take the remains of Joseph with him. Where was Joseph buried? So it says that they buried Joseph in the Nile River. They embalmed him and they put him in uh, whatever it was, some sort of casket or whatever, and they lowered him to the bottom of the Nile because they knew that, that uh, Jacob and Joseph, Joseph had brought the, the, and the, the blessing to the land and he was the one that, uh, that arranged the food in the times of famine, whatever. So he was a blessing. He brought a, a blessing to the agriculture, to the actual sustenance of the land. So they put him in the Nile. The Nile, there's no rainfall in Egypt. So everything is irrigated through the Nile River. When the Nile rises, so they had irrigation channels that allowed everything to grow. That's, that's how it worked over there then. Maybe even today still. And they put him in, in the Nile to bring a blessing to the Nile that it should always overflow and should always provide the water that they need to grow crops and, and provide for, uh, for the land of Egypt. Good. Moses is now ready to go. The Jewish people are ready to go. And no Yosef. He's stuck in the bottom of the Nile. How are you going to get him out? So Moses writes this incantation on a piece of paper or whatever. I'm sure they didn't paper it back. Whatever he wrote it on. Aleishar, which means rise, ox. Why ox? Because in the blessing to the tribes, Jacob, Yaakov, patriarch, gives each of his sons, associates them with an animal. The animal that Joseph is associated with is the ox, is the shar. So he writes, Aleshar, casts it by the Nile River, and Yosef's remains rise. And then they collect the remains, and then they carry it through. And indeed, Moses himself carried Yosef's, Joseph's remains throughout the desert for the 40 years, and then it was carried in by Joshua into the Holy Land, and he was eventually buried in, uh, in Shechem, in, uh, called Nablus today, I guess, but Shechem in Israel. Now, There were those individuals that uh, chapped in Yiddish, grabbed the paper, Aleshar. When people witnessed this miracle of, right, of Joseph's remains rising from the Nile because of this paper, there were those who said, hey, let's get in on this. And they collected the paper that said, Aleshar, rise, ox. You never know when you're going to need it to do something cool, right? You never know. It's got special power, obviously. When they threw the gold into the fire by the golden calf, they threw in this paper that said Alishar, and out came this, not an ox, but a calf in the same family. Okay. Good. That's the little bit of background of, uh, of the golden calf. Anyway, so let's, uh, let's move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have a new handout, and there it is. We're going to get into the, I love chapter 2, the theological argument for idolatry. If you've ever wanted, if you've ever wanted to argue for pro-idolatry, here's your chance. Alright? Let's, yeah, let's separate out the old copies that they don't, if you could just move the old, the, if, unless you want to keep it. But chapter 1 copies, move to the center, and we'll send out the new chapter 2s. We'll make sure that no one is confused. Let me take this last one, because that's the source one. Thank you. But can I ask a question? Sure. While we're passing this out. Sure. So, is this... Um, incident of the golden calf any more incomprehensible than other incomprehensible things that have happened in Jewish history? Like, 
like the ten plagues, was that comprehensible? I mean, there was so much that... No, but that's, you know, that, that we don't mind that. Because it hooked us up. Mm-hmm. Freedom. The incomprehensibility, huh? No, and, and also because, you know, God pulled that off. So God can do that. How do we do the incomprehensible? That's like, that's shocking. But maybe it shouldn't be shocking. Because we're capable of just absolute fallacy. But I think that's the point. We want to get to the heart of it. Where does this come from? What makes us susceptible? And why is it that the women weren't susceptible to this? That's, that's the key. That's the Could case. it be that the mixed multitude was in a hurry to do this because, like, you know, the moon was going in before us or something? Uh, we're going to get into this. All right, hold on, hold on. We're going to get into the astrology. All right, hold, hold that idea. Hold that idea. But first, we're going to give the underlying, the underpinning uh, theological arguments for idolatry. In other words, how is it that a person can believe in idols? Literally in idols, in those little uh, statues that they used to, or whatever. Okay, how is that possible? So let's, let's discuss it. All right. Carol, will you please read page 28 at the top? The theological argument for idolatry. The matter may be understood as follows. The critical, the theological error made by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who said, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? I know not the Lord. And therefore, I will not release the Israelites, an error shared in common with all of the other deniers of the true faith. It's not that they actually reject the existence of God. So stop here for a second. Look what he says here. This is, an, this is a very, very powerful and important point. He says like this, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, epitomizes idolatry. What does Pharaoh say? The Torah records what he said. Moses comes to him and he says, let my people go. Oh, he said... God, Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, I have a message to you from Hashem, from God. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is, Me Hashem, Asher Hashem, who is this Hashem? Right? Who is this God that I should listen to him? Lo Hashem, I don't know Hashem. And therefore he says, Lo therefore I'm not going to send Israel, I'm not going to send the Jewish people. Why? He says, because I know not. He says, who is Hashem? I don't know Hashem. I'm not going to let the Jewish people go. So what, he, so what he's saying, he's basically denying Hashem. See, there is no Hashem. What Hashem? Who Hashem? Where Hashem? I don't know Hashem. We have idols. We operate with a different. Uh, we operate on a different level. Who's Hashem that I should listen to him? Therefore, I'm not going to listen to him. And therefore, I'm not letting the Jewish people go. So he says, this is. You just said this is the 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 error shared in common with other deniers of faith. Right? I don't know Hashem. He says, this is not, it doesn't mean that these folks, that Pharaoh or others, actually reject the existence of God. Pharaoh did not actually reject the existence of Hashem. So what did he reject? Let's understand what he's saying here. When Pharaoh says, I don't know Hashem, who is Hashem? I don't know Hashem. What he's positing in this text is that Pharaoh knows Hashem. Pharaoh believes in Hashem. And yet he's still saying, I don't know Hashem. Who is Hashem that I should listen to? There's a subtlety here. There's a profound subtlety here. But we're not going to understand it yet until we move a little bit further. Carol, take it away. Um, All idolaters know Him, that He is the creator of all creations, and that He is eternal. As the verse states, from the rising of the sun to its settings, 
My name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. Indeed, as the sages say, even the idolaters call him God of gods, as in the verse, praise the God of the supernal things. And really that translation is not so correct. It should be not so precise in this context. It should be praise the God, hodu lelokeho elokim, praise the God of the other gods. In other words, his point is here that even those who believe in idols, who serve idols, etc., they also know, they also... They also what's, uh, uh, know Him, in a sense. They also know Hashem. They also know Hashem, or that there is Hashem, that there is a God of gods. In other words, they also know that there's an ultimate source that's higher than the other gods. And yet, and yet, they don't know Him. They know Him, and they don't know Him at the same time. In a good way or not in a good a bad, way? You know, in a uncomfortable way. No, 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 hold on, hold on. I want to be clear what he's saying here. What he's saying is like this. That the Pharaoh, let's talk about Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes along and he says, I don't know Hashem. I'm not going to let you go. Hashem, Moses, you're saying Hashem says let my people go. Who's Hashem? In this text he's saying Pharaoh does know Hashem. Pharaoh does know that there is the concept of Hashem. And yet, it does, it's not relevant to him. It doesn't affect him. Why? He's making a very precise point. Hold, hold that thought for a second. We need to get to the next paragraph, and then I'm going to hand out this hand that's going to clarify. Alright? Rather, continue please. Rather, their error lies in maintaining that God has abandoned the world, relinquishing responsibility for its management to the constellations and ministering angels, and empowering them to run the world according to their wish and will. What he's saying here is that the pharaohs of the world know that there's ultimately a uh, first cause, a prime mover, a god that ultimately is at the top of the food chain. And yet, that god has nothing to do with me, and I don't know that god. In other words, I don't have a relationship with that god. Not only do I not have a relationship with that god, but no one can have a relationship with that god, because that god is too lofty. That god is too high. And in fact, God has abandoned the word, God has abandoned the world. That quote comes from Ezekiel. God is, and again, it's a fallacy. It's not a, it's not a quote of truth. It's a, quote of, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quote of this mistruth. God has abandoned the world. God has given up uh, res- uh, the management responsibility uh, to constellations, the mazalot, the ministering angels, the, the astrological signs. God has given up the, the control of the world to other powers. Therefore, it makes sense to serve the other powers, the sun, the moon, the stars. This is where it comes from. Why are we serving? Why as a humanity do we come to a place where we're serving? Maimonides, it's not in here. Maimonides traces idolatry. He says, what happened? Everyone knew from Adam. Everyone knew that there was a God that created everything. What happened was, as the generations continued and stretched on, people started thinking, well, wait a second. God, God is too big. God is too great. We think God is actually, God is involved in every sunrise and sunset. God doesn't have anything better to do. If I were God, here's where the thinking comes, if I were God, I would want to be involved in such a lowly, physical, ugly world? No way. God for sure is, you know, doing something more important than dealing with the everyday, dealing with every detail in this world. There's no way that God's involved. So who's involved? The sun gives light and energy. The moon controls the tides. 
right? The, the stars, the constellations have their energies. That's, wh- that's what controls the world. That's what gives energy into the world. That's what we need to be serving. This is where it happened. That's where it came from. Not that these idolaters wouldn't say that ultimately there is a God on top of everything, but that that God on top is not actually on top of anything. It's on, he's on top, but not on top of. God is, God is the source of them, but God is not actually micromanaging. There's no way. This is the fa- This is where the argument, this is where you go from belief in God, monotheism is defined by Judaism, and idolatry. This is where the divergence is made. Yeah. How can you argue with another belief system that apparently works for the Egyptians? How, how can one, in other words, well, he's that's not, their belief system. Well, he, that, that, we're, we're not, he's not arguing. All he's saying is that this is not consistent with the Jewish belief. Right. In other words, the Jewish belief is in Hashem. And that Hashem is controlling every detail. I mean, this is, look, this is, this is, this is the Jewish faith. This is the Jewish understanding of God. So, and again, what he's saying is here that even Pharaoh would concede that there is a God above the sun, above the stars, above that, but that that God is not getting involved. And what he's saying here is that this is not consistent with our beliefs. Okay, continue. Furthermore. Furthermore, they maintain that he himself plays no part whatsoever in managing the world, being that he is exalted and elevated beyond such physical phenomena as transpire on earth, and that it would be degrading for him to lower himself to attend to such lowly matters here below. For this reason, he has abandoned their management of the ministering angels and On that note, I want to pass out this handout that has uh, some very important texts. Sorry. Basically, he's the creator and that's where it ends. Yeah, ultimately, right. Ultimately, the creator, once upon a time, but now, not, not, totally not hands-on. Not involved. So, in a way, idolatry is when you worship middle management because the CEO is off in the Bahamas. And exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, I want, let, let, and let's, make it per, let's make it relevant now, personal now, for, for all of us. How often in our lives do we do the same thing? Do we serve the other things every hour, every hour on the hour? Right? I mean, no, we all do this. We always we have a tendency to, to put our hope and trust and prayers into all of the other stuff in the middle and, and feel like, well, God is too busy for this and for that. God, what, God's really going to deliver this? And, and, you know. Okay, I want to read, we're going to read two texts here. We're going to read two texts. These are very important. They come from a book that I have in front of me. Its uh, author is Tzvi Freeman. It's called Bringing Heaven Down to Earth, 365 Meditations. Okay? It's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. His daughter just moved two miles away from here. Svi oh Freeman's daughter just moved. She's married to a gentleman named Shlomo Sharfstein, and they are the new Chabad rabbi in Rebetzin at Georgia Tech and Georgia State. They live on 10th Street, or right off of 10th Street. Right here, right down. He was here this morning. So anyway, his wife's, his father-in-law wrote this book. He's an amazing author. He has an amazing story. You got It's an amazing book. I want to read. Does, that, does everybody have a copy? Because I actually have the book. Everyone has a copy. Okay. Let's let's read. Let's let's read these. Svi Freeman. I'm going to read. Exiling God. They have banished God into exile. They have decreed He is too holy, too transcendent to belong in our world. 
They have determined he does not belong within the ordinary, in the daily run of things. And so they have driven him out of his garden, to the realm of prayer and meditation, to the sanctuaries and the secluded places of hermits. They have sentenced the Creator to exile, and his creation they have locked in a dark, cold prison. And he pleads, let me come back to my garden, to the place in which I found the light when it all began. This, how true is this? How true is this? God, no, God is only in the sanctuaries, in the top of the mountains, in the secluded places of hermits. That's where God is found. The rest of the world, it's dark and it's cold and it's going to stay dark and cold. Because God can't be found here. This is not a Jewish belief. Truly infinite. The philosophers are only trying to be nice to God. They can't allow an infinite being to get his complete simple unity messed up with a lowly material fragmented world. And so they banish him to the far ethereal heavens, as removed as possible from our world. By their way of thinking, you can forget about miracles, prophecy, or divine intervention in your life. God is just too far out there. Turn over. Those philosophers are fools. In their groping for the infinite, they have ended up with a God bound by the limitations of the human mind. In fact, the ultimate measure of the infinite is that it can be found within the finite as well. God is here now within everything, and God is one. Meditation number 42. These, this is Jewish belief. That God is not so spiritual that He cannot be found in the physical. God is infinite, and true infinite is found within the infinite and the finite, within the spiritual and the physical. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that, I, I want to be careful though, because we also have to do the things that we have to do. At the same time though, we have to remember what is ultimately the cause of everything. In other words, what's really running the show and what's the instrument or the tool. And this is something that we explored extensively in the last, bless you, in two series ago, the book called Overcoming Folly. We explored this extensively, the idea of the difference between um, the, in a sense, middle management and a tool. Because middle management does have control over certain decisions. It's the middle management, or whatever, or whatever the right term is, but there are those in place, like if a king puts officers and ministers in control of, of finance, of whatever, so they have control, they have a say in something. But when it comes to the constellation, when it comes to everything else in God's world, doesn't have power. It's a tool that God uses to allow a certain blessing to be manifest in the world. So you need the tool, but it's not that the, it's not that the tool actually wields the power. And this is something we're going to explore further on in our text, in this text that we're studying, feminine faith. But the idea, so we're going to, we're going to I want to leave this here now. The idea that I want to leave you with is the, the two readings, and really the two readings are pretty much the same idea. Um, they're in different sections in the book, but they really, they really complement each other. The idea that Judaism believes that God is not too big for our world. God is not too 
um, holy to be found in the material. This is actually a limitation that human beings are putting on God. To believe that God can't be found in this world. That God can't uh, be involved intimately in every detail of the world. Hashkacha Prat is a specific divine providence. This is something that the human being, a limitation that the human being has placed on God, not something that is, uh, that is necessarily true. So, as also that we are not, we are not some, you know, the belief that we are too insignificant to have a relationship with God. Right, right. Or we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're we too small. We're too small for God to really want to be involved with. This is again. This is. I mean, that that might be an inferiority complex or whatever. But this is uh, this is certainly not not in uh, in concert with Jewish belief. So, the idea here that we're establishing in this text is, what is the theological argument for idolatry? It's as follows. It's God is too big, special, holy, infinite, um, spiritual, lofty, divine for this world. And therefore, Pharaoh says to Moses, who's God? I know God. I know Hashem, but who's Hashem here? Hashem's going to take you out of Egypt? Hashem doesn't do that. Hashem doesn't get involved in slaves. Hashem doesn't care about one nation oppressing another nation. Hashem doesn't care about that. Hashem says, let my people go. What does Hashem care about? Hashem cares about a people? He doesn't care about that. He doesn't get involved in the nitty gritty. You want to be free? You speak to me. And I say no. Right? If you want to get free, you've got to speak to the pharaohs of the world. You've got to speak to the movers and shakers. You've got to speak to those that actually have control in this world. You gotta to speak to the CEOs, to the kings, to the ministers, to the presidents, to the governors. That's what you have to speak to. Pray to God. You pray to God. What's God gonna do for you? That's what Pharaoh is saying. Not that Pharaoh doesn't believe that ultimately there is an ultimate source that put everything into being from the beginning, that created, that's the ultimate source, yada yada yada. Of course. Perhaps. But the, perhaps. But that God should care about what's going on on the ground? Don't be silly. That's what Pharaoh says. Moses, let my people go because God said so. Seriously. God said so. I'll show you. I'll show you. There are other gods out there. There are other gods. The sun, the moon, the stars. And they're not saying any of that. That's what Pharaoh says. So, this is the theological argument for idolatry. It's, in a sense, trying to be too nice to God. It's creating God in our f- limited, flawed image as opposed to embracing the truth of God in His own terms as defined by Torah. So this is, uh, this is the beginning of understanding where idolatry comes from. And that, this will help us, just to, to get the progression, this will help us better understand where the sin of the golden calf comes from, which is a form of idolatry, and why women were impervious to this, and why only men were susceptible to this. In other words, what we're really going to get to is this, is this place of understanding how this disconnect, or this uh, um, uh, uh, what am I looking for? This um, banishing God to the heavens is more aligned with the masculine spirit than the feminine spirit. This entire concept that we've outlined of idolatry, of, of, of saying that God, uh, God's too big for this, God's too important, God's too busy for this, for the here and now, that is something that's more aligned with the masculine spirit and energy as opposed to the feminine spirit and energy. This is this is ultimately where we're going to get to. All right, that's yeah. Can you repeat what the reactions were then between the 
differences of the female and male at that point by the golden calf? By the golden calf, yeah, sure. By the golden calf, and this is much later after uh, Moses speaks to Pharaoh, but later on with the golden calf, um, the people approach Aaron and they say, you know, where's, where's Moses? What happened to him? You know, we want to... And Aaron says, take the, ear, take the jewelry, jewelry off of your wives and your sons and your daughters. The women refuse, so they take them and take off their own jewelry. And they throw it into the fire and they create the golden calf. And their sages tell us that the women, the Jewish women, were not involved at all in the sin of the golden calf. So here we have a sharp divide between either being part of the idolatry or not being a part of the idolatry. Between the men and the women. And as we're going to get to, it, 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 there's a reason for this. Because idolatry hits on a certain conception that's not only intellectual. It's called the, the theological argument for idolatry. It's more than, a, it's more than a, a philosophy. It really gets to a spirit, a direction of energy, of where the energy is pulling, how the energy feels. The masculine energy feels that God is separated. Feminine energy feels that God is present and therefore has a harder time or therefore we'll find it impossible to, uh, to serve a golden calf. It's not possible. Th- this is what we're going to get to. It's not only clarity, but it's also the difference between b- banishing God or embracing God's presence. But again, we're going to get to all of this. We're going to break it down. Alright, good. So let's, let's pause uh, here. So what do we do today? Today we spoke about the, uh, the sin of the golden calf. We spoke about the concept of how incomprehensible it was that the Jews actually serve the golden calf, it makes no logical sense that a people that just experienced so many miracles and, and, and the closeness to Hashem should turn their backs in such a profound way and create a golden calf. It also makes no sense that they would think that this calf was a god. It also makes no sense that they would say that this calf, which is now a god, again, incomprehensibly, this god also took us out of Egypt. It also makes no sense. It also makes no sense that the only way into this belief was the fact that Moses was a few hours later, a day late, how would that lead to such an implausible uh, conclusion? And we, that was the first half. And the second half was understanding where idolatry comes from. It doesn't come from denying God. That's, that's something else. That's, uh, that's a different name. That doesn't come from, 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 from denying God. It comes from denying God's presence or God's role in the world. That's when I turn to idols. I turn to idols, I turn to intermediaries, I turn to other, to middlemen, I turn to other forces when I don't believe that God can get me out of the situation. I don't believe that God can intervene. Or that God would. Why would He want to? Why would God want to intervene? How could God intervene? God is too big to intervene. So I turn to other means. Right? This is where, this is idolatry. In a subtle sense or a, uh, or a blatant sense, depending on how subtle or blatant it is. Alright, good. Next week... We're going to, uh, to deepen this concept, talking about the constellations, the astrological signs, and the ministering angels. We'll talk about Greece, we'll talk about Persia, Edom, and the Philistines, and Yishmael. We'll talk about Virgo, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Virgo, and Libra. We're going to talk about all these signs and how they're aligned with various countries and nationalities. 
the Kabbalah and astrology, regional stuff. It's gonna be it's gonna be amazing. That's next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. A few quick announcements uh, to mention.